Hello friends, thank you for tuning in this week. Before I introduce the guest, as always, let me run a few things by you. I know this is the part that people usually skip over during any podcast, but I hope you'll stick around. So firstly, please follow, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps boost the show, grow the audience, and ultimately helps me create the best show for you guys. Additionally, please go follow me on social media, R-O-Y-B-T-Z on Instagram and R-O-Y underscore B-N-T-Z on Twitter. If you go to my Twitter profile, you can access the newsletter, which gives you access to updates, occasional blog posts, news about guests and future of the show. And most importantly, it's just an easy way for you to get the podcast into your inbox every single week. Finally, please consider supporting this podcast. It is currently an independent podcast, meaning I do not work with any sponsors or brands. I made this decision because I like independence and I prefer to keep it this way if I can. So if you do feel like you get value from the podcast, please consider supporting it. As always, there is a link in the show notes. Final thing, if you want to start your own podcast, I have a tutorial that covers everything you need to know, soup to nuts, A to Z, how to start a podcast, why you should even start a podcast, how to grow it, execute, market, reach out to guests, everything you need to know about starting a podcast. It's on there, it's easy to use, it's on Gumroad. You can download it, it takes about two seconds. So if that's something you're interested, go check it out again in the show notes as well. All right, let's move on to the guest. This week I have Dr. David Rabin. He is a neuroscientist, board certified psychiatrist, health tech entrepreneur and inventor who has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for over 15 years. He's also the co-founder of Apollo Neuroscience, which we get into that in the podcast. So stick around to find out what that is. And the reason I was so interested in talking to David was he's a big advocate for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, which is still mostly illegal outside of ketamine, which is something I found out in the podcast. But I've watched a couple of documentaries on this topic. I've read very little about it. So I was interested to get someone of his caliber on to explain, to maybe break down some of the stigmas around it and just learn more about this topic. Um, I know it kind of came into the spotlight recently with Michael Pollan's book and a recent documentary on Netflix. So I've just found myself more and more interested in this topic. And he's a wealth of information. He's been doing this for a long time. He knows a lot about this stuff. So I was happy to have him on. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. So let's jump right into it. All right. Let me introduce this week's guest, Dr. David Rabin. Enjoy the episode, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. David, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, man. I, uh, you know, it's funny because we've been kind of planning this for, for a minute. And then about, what, a week or so ago, I saw that new documentary, um, Michael Pollan, right? The Change Your Mind one. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, it's just giving me more information and more insights and like, I don't know, it's not necessarily that I buy into everything, but like, I'm very interested to learn more about a subject I know not too much about. What did, uh, did I don't know, A, did you see the documentary and be like, if you did, what are your kind of thoughts on it? I haven't seen the documentary yet. It's on my list. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, but I've, you know, I'm very familiar with his writing yeah. and, and the book. And, you know, I think it's a, 
it's it's really does a great service to share you know these stories about people's lives who have been dramatically changed by these tools uh, that are very powerful and and not really worthy of the stigma that is applied to them mm-hmm. because they're their medicine, like all the other medicines that we use, most of the medicines we use in Western medicine, most people don't necessarily remember, but they come from plants. These are medicines that come from plants originally, um, and uh, most in most cases anyway. And so they are really just trying, I think, you know, doing a, it does a great job of really helping us understand that these are tools that are very powerful, that when used properly can have great benefit in people's lives and can actually change the the entire paradigm of the way we look at mental illness, which is very exciting. And I have a, I have a podcast coming out this fall that will also be talking about in more detail the ways that we um, experience altered states of consciousness as a norm, mm-hmm. um, not just with medicine, but with lots of different techniques and and um, I think this is just a part of the conversation that needs to be had in our society right now. Oh, that's awesome. Is the podcast going to be you narrating or is it going to be with guests? Like, what's the format? Uh, it's me uh, interviewing, narrating and interviewing uh, guests that are experts in the field that normally that are experts in Eastern, Western and tribal medicine that would and technology and AI that would not necessarily come head to head at the same table. Um, but when we have these discussions that I think it really helps, you know, paint the picture that we're all talking about the same stuff and, and it's really just healing from different perspectives. So I'm excited to, to share that with everyone. Oh yeah. I'd love to hear that. That sounds awesome. Um, I think, I think you said something earlier that, that is important and maybe it's, it's something people don't pick up on. I think you said when used properly, and I think that's so important because in the in the documentary, they made it. I don't want to say they had an agenda, you know, because and 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 most documentaries nowadays do, you know, they they want to push a certain narrative, which is fine. Sometimes that narrative is, is justified to to be pushed, but I think it's so important the the use properly part. Like if you're t- you can abuse anything right you can abuse chocolate you can drink too much water and die like anything you overdo or do you know you can abuse stuff and i think that's what people may have done in the past and i think that's why this documentary and the stuff you're talking about and there was another documentary i saw a few years back in israel how they used mdma to cure ptsd in uh in soldiers i forget the name of that doc i think when used properly it has amazing untapped potential and people are just seeing the street side, right? The, 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 like people taking different types of drugs unsolicited. Sometimes they don't even know what they're taking. They're taking it without really knowing what they're doing and they end up in, you know, critical or dead or whatever. So I think that part is, is good. is like important to highlight when used properly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really everything, right? I mean, it goes back to, um, an ancient saying that is the dose makes the poison, Mm -hmm. right? Which is that you can take one, one substance and you can take it at a certain dose, what used or used properly. And, um, 
people have great benefit and they can you can cure illness and you can really help people dramatically improve their lives and you take that same medicine at the wrong dose and you mm. can kill yourself or poison yep. yourself um, and this is very well known and um, we see this with lots of pretty much every medicine that exists uh, that we know of and you know I think the my favorite analogy for this is really thinking about you know, um, mechanics and cars, right? Which is that you can have the best, the, the best, the worst mechanic in the world using a, the best tools in the world, mm -hmm. and they will break your car because the best tools in the hands of somebody who doesn't know how to use them can cause great damage. Yeah. And at the same time, if you have the best mechanic in the world and the worst tools, chances are they will, they may not be able to fix your car, but they probably won't break it because at least they know their way around the vehicle and are, and they can treat it with respect and they treat the tools with respect and they know how to not misuse them, which is the biggest cause of harm, whether we're in medicine or whether we're in automotive repair. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, you know, it's important to think about our bodies in a lot of respects and our minds, the whole mind body that we are, the person that we are is the highest performing vehicle that we will ever own is that is our bodies. That is our mind. And together, um, which they are make up our person, this is the highest performing, most fancy functioning vehicle that any of us will ever own. So we, it's imperative that we learn the information that helps us to understand how to use our tools properly. And there are so many tools out there. So, you know, it's impossible to learn how to use them all. But when you are going to use one, do everything you can to try to figure out how to use it safely, respectfully, properly, um, or surround yourself with people who can help you do that. Yeah. It's so funny. I, I, uh, when I came to the U S I, um, I went to school for photography and the teacher used to say something similar. He was like, you can buy a $10,000 camera and still not get great photos. But if you give a great photographer, a hundred dollar camera, like the shittiest camera, he will create amazing things with that camera because he knows how to use it. He, he sees things that you don't. He, he's got the, you know, composition, the light. He knows everything and he will create something amazing out of that $100 camera. So yeah, along that line. Um, yeah, and I, think, and I think one important example of this that is absolutely in front of everybody's faces right now is the opioid crisis, yeah. right? Because opioids and opiate medications are very, very important tools to manage pain in the short-term setting. And they work very, very well when used properly and respectfully in the short-term setting over the course of a week or two when somebody is either undergoing surgery or has a terrible accident happen and they need support with recovery. But when they're used long-term, they cause dramatic and and tragic levels of harm to people because they are so addictive and i think this is also something to remember is that not all tools are created equal not all drugs are created equal pretty much everything has the propensity or possibility to participate in addictive behavior or dependence but certain things are more likely to fall into or promote that those patterns than others which tend to be things that either distract or numb us to being alive or to our feelings and those are things like sedatives, uh, hypnotics, opioids, alcohol, barbiturates, things like that, um, and st and stimulants, distractants like cocaine, crack, uh, amphetamines, and speed, and things like that, which are in a different category than what we consider to be psychedelic or mind or or mind manifesting 
molecules, psychedelic drugs. Um, and so these are all different tools that can be used different in different ways that are very, very powerful. Um, and again, opiates are an incredible discovery for their use for managing pain in the short term, but using them long-term is generally not indicated and causes great harm. So we're really trying to, and this is a lot of the work that I do with the board of medicine, mm -hmm. um, which is how do we look at the, the tools that we have with, with respect, evaluating all the evidence for their proper use, and then provide the guidelines to the community that are current up to date that says, this is how you can use these tools effectively to accomplish your goal by without putting the subject or the patient or the client at in harm's way. Because if the first of the Hippocratic principles of practicing medicine is first do no harm, Yeah. right? So if we are doing anything else and potentially doing harm to our clients or our patients as physicians, we are violating the Hippocratic Oath in a very fundamental way that is basically sabotaging our own abilities to help people. So if we really want to embrace the spirit, the, the spirit of medicine or the art and science together of medicine and practice medicine the way it was always intended to be practiced to get the best outcomes, we have to remember to first do no harm, which means to use our medicines and our tools respectfully and to educate ourselves and others about how to use them in the same way. So we've already kind of set the groundwork for, for people. I'm sure they understand like the general direction we're going, but I'd love for you to give a little bit of intro talk about yourself, like what your background is, and then I guess how you got into this super interesting field. Well, uh, happy to. So I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. Um, I'm board certified, which means that I uh, am legally practice psychiatry in uh, three states. Um, we focus mostly, I have a number of clinicians that work with me at the Apollo Clinic. We mostly focus on um, trauma and recovery. Um, primarily with a, it's what we call holistic psychiatry. So this includes Eastern, Western, and tribal techniques. We use technology. We use uh, lifestyle medicine, um, nutrition, whole the whole thing, because all of this is impacting, all of these things impact uh, mental health because mental health and physical health are intimately connected and they're inseparable. Mm -hmm. If we are mentally unwell and we don't address it, we'll become physically unwell. And if we're physically unwell and don't address it, we become mentally unwell. So they're completely inseparable. Um, and so these tools that we use are, are very, very interesting. And I think to the point of what we were talking about earlier, um, what really led me to try to find out what else we could do for people was that the techniques that we were taught to use in our psychiatry uh, training, um, to treat mental illness were just not working well. Uh, and when we looked at the statistics of people who were recovering from, uh, mental illness like PTSD as one example, under 50% of people with post-traumatic stress disorder were getting better long-term after two or more tries of the gold standard recommended treatments that were we are told to offer people. So that means that most people who have post-traumatic stress disorder in the United States are trying two or more of the best recommended treatments and they are not getting better long-term. Their symptoms are still present long-term to the point where they're causing significant dysfunction in their lives, which is not a good statistic. Yeah. And so this was causing great challenges for our patients. And of course, in turn for us, because we as clinicians went into the field to help people. And now all of a sudden we're sitting there feeling totally powerless and not able to actually make a, make a change in these people's lives, despite being taught all the things that we're told we're supposed to do and they're not working. And so it forced us to ask the questions 
that are a little bit uncomfortable to ask, but the questions that are really important for us, which are, you know, do we understand trauma correctly, right? Is our understanding of, of mental illness, trauma, depression, um, anxiety disorders, is this really aligned with the, what's actually happening in the body or are we missing something? And ultimately, um, that led me to study three things predominantly, which were number one, the safety pathways in the body and how we balance stress and threat versus safety signals, which is what we call balanced by uh, the autonomic nervous system, which is fancy way of saying the part of our nervous system that runs in the background to regulate our entire functioning of our bodies, which is broken down into the fight or flight system, the stress response system that responds to survival threat, but also to other things we perceive that could be threatening to us and takes over many of our busy, busy lives. And then the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest system that's responsible for diverting resources to everything that is involved in recovery. So immunity, reproduction, digestion, metabolism, efficient energy storage, sleep, energy recovery, all of these things, empathy, the things that we don't want to be getting resources when we're running from a bear or a lion in the jungle, those things are governed by that part of the nervous system. So that was the first thing that really um, drew our attention because in people with treatment resistant post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and anxiety disorders as an example, but PTSD was our focus. We realized that all of these people, not just in our clinic, but in the literature at large, had very, very high activity in their sympathetic system, this fight or flight system. And they had it all the time. And they were describing their lives as feeling constantly under threat. And when their symptoms got better, their symptoms got better because they felt safe. And they would say, oh, this music makes me feel safe. Or this eye-to-eye -eye contact sitting here with you in the office, having this nice conversation where you're not judging me and you're listening to what I have to say, that's making me feel safe and, my, and I feel better. And soothing touch and holding my pets and, and getting massage and all these things, they make me feel better. So we started to follow that a little bit. And what we realized was that all of these techniques, breath work included, yoga included, exercise included, they all do something very interesting to this autonomic nervous system, the safety and threat response, which is that they balance it. They reduce the activity in the, in the sympathetic fight or flight system and the increased activity in the parasympathetic recovery or vagal system. And that rebalancing of that system is basically the activity that you're doing reminding you because it's soothing and because you're generally in control when you're doing any of these activities like soothing, receiving soothing touch or, or exercising or uh, stretching or doing yoga or meditation or breath work or listening to music that you like, holding a pet. It reminds you if you're safe enough to pay attention to the soothing feeling of this experience, then you can't possibly be running from a lion in that moment because our nervous system is literally hardwired to not allow that to happen because yeah. otherwise we would die, right? We would not be able to make it to procreation if we were able to just pay attention to our soothing, gentle music when a lion is around the corner, right? <laughs> so this is very, very critical thing to understand about the way we evolve. And so that understanding, which is well, on, which is well known in the literature at that time, this is back in 2014 through 2017 or so, um, allowed us to have it develop a new paradigm for what's happening in people with mental severe mental illness or mental illness at all. And that allowed us to figure out that things like soothing touch could be an ally in the way that we approach and address the people's symptoms of mental illness. And so we studied soothing touch. 
We studied other tools that enhance safety in the body, like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, these treatments that are, that are you know, absolutely on the forefront of how we are, are thinking, rethinking the way we treat PTSD and depression and anxiety disorders because they work so well to enhance the safety pathway in the body. They allow people the opportunity with the therapist to effectively accelerate the progress in therapy very, very quickly. And so from doing that work with MDMA and ketamine um, and doing those trainings, which I also realized that we could apply the learnings from these medicines to the technology that we developed at the University of Pittsburgh, which is the technology that went into the Apollo device. So the way that we use touch to effectively send safety signals to the skin that reminds us that we're safe and in control and that turned into Apollo. So yeah, I would love to, to learn more because I, I, I've heard you on a couple of podcasts and I heard you talk about Apollo Neuro, right? That's the that's what it's called? Apollo Neuro, yeah. Neuro, yeah. The device you, is the Apollo wearable and the company is Apollo Neuro or Apollo Neuroscience. Yeah, could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so along the lines of what we were just talking about, so basically Apollo is a wearable. It okay. can go on your wrist, on your ankle. Um, it actually works anywhere on your body because it is delivering music, sound waves that we figured out in the lab at the University of Pittsburgh that we could tune to the to the receptors in your skin instead of your ears because sound is just physical vibration. Okay. It's vibration in the air that is at a certain frequency between generally what we consider to be 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. That is what our ears can receive and that those frequencies of physical vibration go into our ears and our ears pick up that vibration and then transmit it into a nerve impulse that goes to the auditory cortex of our brain and then tells us that we hear sound, right? Okay. So that, so those frequencies, we know certain ones are very soothing and, the, and certain slow frequencies like in meditation music or music that people sometimes listen to before bed, very slow, soothing, calming music can calm you down. Other music that's really energizing and fast and loud can amp you up and give you energy. And there's other music that you can have that puts you into a focused flow state. And there's other music that makes you social and want to party and hang with your sure. friends, yeah. right? And so we know that music has all of these different effects. But the problem is that music, as good as it is, requires your ears to be open mm -hmm. to it, which means that it, it can be distracting. You can't do it while you're giving a talk. You can't listen to music while you're having a conversation with someone because it's distracting. Mm -hmm. You need your ears for all of these things in our day-to-day -day lives. So what we thought was, well, if music ha is well-known to have this effect, what else can have this effect? Well, touch has this effect. The feeling of holding a purring cat has this effect. The feeling of lying on the beach with ocean waves washing over you or crashing on the shore has this effect because these rhythms activate the same safety systems of the, our brain, our emotional cortex that soothing music does. And so when we realized that, we said, okay, well, let's try to figure out what is happening in the skin. And can we take what we know about music? We were all musicians and neuroscience researchers. And we said, can we take what we know about music and then compose music that's specific for like the seven touch receptors in your skin rather than for your ears? So you can't really hear it, but when your skin feels it, it feels like somebody giving you a hug or it feels like somebody holding your hand, right? That you like. <laughs> so what? So this, this wearable release, what, what does it 
release that makes you feel like you're getting a hug. And it's specifically because it's only on one little part of your body, right? Right. So when somebody holds your hand on a bad day and you like the person, sure, that's only on one part of your body, right? Sure. But it calms you down pretty quick. Yeah, potentially. <laughs> yeah, if you like the person. Sure, sure. If you like the person or somebody puts their hand on your shoulder, right? You're having a yeah. hard time and they put their hand on your back and they rub your back a little bit, right? Yeah. These these are these are actions that even though they're only on one part of the body, the our body's touch receptors respond to them, which is to the slow gentle movements of the of one hand on another part of someone's body that the receptors in the receiver and the and the person who's doing the touching both receive input back that this is soothing mm -hmm. and the receptors are tuned to that. And so Apollo emits these gentle vibrations that feel basically similar to the most similar thing they feel that they feel to is like a cat's purr. So mm -hmm. it's a very, very gentle vibration that's barely noticeable. It kind of fades into the background or it feels like a butterfly kind of like fluttering on your body. And it sends a signal to the body that we figured out in the lab effectively is replicating not all of the benefits of soothing touch, but it's replicating the core parts of soothing touch that the, our emotional brain recognizes as safe. So you can effectively get the safe benefits of touch that we are all in control of, that we can deliver to ourselves at any time, anywhere we go which effectively gives you the benefits of being able to put yourself into a flow state at any time that you're in control of. So that's like what, you, I guess that's what my question is. So is this automated in any way? Like does the, does it feel like, I don't know, based on whatever parameters, heartbeat or, or whatever it is, or do you have to activate it when you're feeling anxiety or depression or, or bad or something along those lines? So, so the way that most people use it right now is they schedule it. So, but it okay. does, it, it has to be activated to use it in general, you have to activate it with the buttons on the device or you activate it with your app. But on the app, about maybe six or eight months ago, we released this really, um, really nice feature. That's my favorite feature that I, is one of the favorites of our, of our community where you can set a schedule. Mm. And when you set a schedule, what it does is it, it schedules your, you schedule your wake up time. I schedule um, several modes during the day because I do a lot of things and my attention sometimes wanders and I lose focus. So yeah. when I start to feel tired in the morning, I have a certain, I have my clear and focus mode turn on. When I start to feel uh, a slump in the afternoon, I have my rebuild and recover turn on. I use that mode also after I work out, it helps me recover more quickly. Um, and we've seen that in some trials as well. Um, and then I use in the evening when I have to wind down after work, I have my social and open mode turn on. And then I have my relax and unwind turn on at like 930 when I'm supposed to be winding down for bed because sometimes yeah. I still have too much energy at night. And that kind of winds me down. So I'm ready to fall asleep and get into bed and then sleep and renew when I get into bed. And I have each of those for like a 15 minutes to half an hour, maybe an hour at most kind of scheduled throughout the day. It saves those modes to my device. Okay. And then my device actually turns on automatically for me so that it keeps me in my rhythm. And what we know about humans, but animals in general, but humans as well, is that we all have a rhythm that our bodies like to function at. Mm -hmm. And we're not always aware of that rhythm because our body's rhythms, like our circadian rhythms, which regulates our sleep and wake cycles, those get disrupted by eating at weird times having lots of lights, bright lights and sound with cell phone screens and TV screens and all these things around us that yeah. we were not 
meant to have around us in the wild. Normally, we would have a certain hormone cycle in our bodies and a rhythm between our heart and lungs and our vasculature and our brain that effectively is synced with nature. It's synced with the sun and the moon and as a, and the temperature around us. And as the sun goes rises up, our melatonin or the temperature of the air comes up and the brightness of the sun and the temperature of the air trigger our bodies to decrease melatonin secretion and then and increase cortisol. And then we wake up and then cortisol comes down and melatonin continues to go down over the course of the day. And then all the hormones that keep us sleepy go down. And then all the hormones and, and molecules that start to increase our sleep end up tuning up as the sun is setting, the temperature is dropping, which is a signal to our bodies as the light is changing and the temperature is changing and the sounds are changing and all these things that it's time to wind down for sleep. Again, we don't have these kinds of cues anymore the way that we used to. And we have tons of other cues that are telling us other things like blue cell phone light, which says, you need to be awake right now. That's what yeah. it's telling our brains. So when you think about those rhythms, we've lost those rhythms, but our bodies love those rhythms. Our bodies need those rhythms to function optimally. So if we are out of sync with our ideal rhythm, then we will not be functioning at our peak or anywhere near that. And it'll be more challenging for us to perform at our peak and to recover at our peak. And so the reason why this is so important is because that's one of the main ways that Apollo works is it helps to restore our natural body's rhythm. So you can set it effectively, you can set it and forget it. And then it does the rhythm maintenance for us so that we can still get back to our core functioning of where we are in our sweet spot yeah. and, and, and effectively creates a noise canceling effect for our brains that allows us to be able to filter out a lot of that incoming stuff that's not useful to us and not helping and eliminate it from our lives by recognizing it that this is not something that's helpful to me right now. So I don't need to focus on it and I can go back to my rhythm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah no, for sure. You know, as, as you were talking about this, I was thinking we have all these amazing technologies, right? Like the wearables and there's so many other wearables right now that, that have all these different benefits. There's beds that tell you how to sleep, make your, you know, your sleep better, uh, adjust to the temperature of your body. Food has never been more accessible. In fact, we have too much food. Uh, we have all this technology. We have all this information, all this um, convenience, right? Yet, it seems like in the last decade or so, mental health has everyone and their mother is suffering from something like depression, anxiety, personality disorders, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just wondering, like, I don't know, like, I, I, I don't know if there is a correlation, but I wonder, like, why with the ease of life has, and, and this could be, I think this maybe is a little bit more U.S. based. I don't know if this is necessarily true for other countries, but why do you think there's been such a massive spike in, in numbers in, in mental health in the past, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years or so? It's a great question. I think there's a couple different answers to it. I don't think there's just one. Sure. Um, so I think the first is that, that we are overstimulated. All of us are overstimulated, meaning that there's an imbalance between what's coming in and what we actually have time to process and the resources to process. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So there needs to be a balance between how much information we allow in, how many inputs come in, and how much time and resource we have to be able to process those in, that information and do something with it. And we have to have skills to know how to do that. 
right? How to process it, how to allocate resources, how to direct our attention to things that are meaningful to us that we want to be part of our lives and how to direct our attention away from things that aren't meaningful, that aren't helpful to our lives. That is, a, those are two major thing issues that we, our society is struggling with, particularly in the Western world, because we haven't number, our education system overall has failed us, myself included, in that, you know, we were just not taught how to focus and properly, we're not taught how to control our attention, which means that we have a very, we have very significant challenges in processing the incoming information. Yeah. Right. And, and determining what's important and meaningful and what's not important and not meaningful in the moment that creates the downstream effect of not being able to make good decisions that are in the best interest of ourselves and our community. And so instead we make the impulsive decisions that are about what we perceive to be dealing with survival threat right now, which are generally more selfish decisions, more decisions with blinders on that are maybe feel good in the moment, but are actually very detrimental in the long run, right? So that is number one. We are overstimulated and we don't have the knowledge or the tool, the, the skill sets to use the tools that we have available to process that all that information and filter all the in, incoming information coming in. Those are the, the two of the most major ones. The third major one, that is the I think one of the biggest contributors to the um, increase in the mental health crisis that we're facing, which is quite dramatic, is what we saw when the pandemic happened, right? Which is that people became more socially isolated. Yeah. And ultimately, what we often forget in the Western world, which Latin American countries know very well, is that touch from a loved one is one of the most therapeutic healing things that we can experience on a daily basis. And it's generally free from our loved ones. And yet we don't take advantage of it because it makes us feel vulnerable. It's considered taboo in certain religious back upbringings and certain cultural backgrounds. But the problem is that it is critically important for our mental health, because when you think about what soothing touch from a loved one, someone we trust does, something as simple as somebody holding your hand or putting their hand on your back or giving you a hug, what this does is it sends signals to our brains, that's that emotional cortex of our brains, which is a lot of parts, but we can call it the insulate cortex for now, which is a part of the limbic system, which is this big emotional cortex of our brains, which of which the fear center of our brains, the amygdala is a critical part of. And when the signal of soothing touch comes in, it sends a signal to the emotional brain that says, if I'm safe enough to pay attention to this feeling right now, like we were talking about earlier, sure. then I can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. And then that sends a signal to the amygdala the fear center that's blasting off and says, hey, there's new stuff on, there's new stuff going on, there's new stuff going on. This is scary because new stuff is generally scary when we're already stressed out uh, or unprepared for it. And it tells the amygdala to calm down because there's a soothing input coming in that says it's you're safe right now. And so that soothing input, not just, it doesn't just encourage that safety loop to occur in the brain, in the emotional brain, it trains that loop in different situations. And what it also does downstream from that loop is it tells our brain and our bodies to release all of the hormones and all of the neurotransmitters that we seek every drug to replace when we don't have access to regular, reliable, soothing touch from a loved one. 
So let's go through those because everybody knows them. Serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, endorphins, opiates, endogenous opiates, the opiates our own body makes Mm -hmm. to relieve pain. Uh, Endocannabinoids, like anandamide, the the, the, we have a cannabinoid system in our bodies. So the cannabinoid molecules that our bodies make are called endocannabinoids. Soothing touch causes a release of those. And all of these reward neurotransmitters and all of these um, powerful neurotransmitters are all release oxytocin, right? This major bonding molecule. All of these are released or facilitated um, by soothing touch. So if we don't have touch in our lives, which there was already a lack of soothing touch that we were receiving in America and in many Western countries before the pandemic. Now everyone's socially isolated. It's basically forbidden to get close enough to touch people because you can't know that you're going to be safe around them. And mental health tanks because people are losing one of the main things that they use to help soothe. And we did not, most of us did not learn adequately how to self-soothe when we were kids. It's not the fault of anyone. It's just that our parents didn't necessarily know how to teach us. I didn't Mm -hmm. learn it effectively, but touch, the lack of touch is critical. And that is definitely directly correlated with the spike in mental uh, illness that we're seeing right now. Well, here in the US, touch is not like, outside of really shaking someone's hand, you don't really touch people too much. Where if you go to Israel, guys hug, guys, you know, kiss right. on the cheeks. They're much more physical with one another. If you go to India or Arab I've country, seen, I've or, seen men holding hands walking yeah, yeah. the street in India and in, in Israel, India, Latin America. Yeah, Arab countries, you know, they'll hold hands with one another, not in a, you know, in any way, just in a friendship type way. Uh, if you go to Thailand, you know, I, I was in Thailand for a, lot, a long time. They're all giving one another massages. You'll see like the young guys give the dads massage. Like they're just giving massages all day long. So in a lot of other countries, like touching one another, if you go all along the Mediterranean, it's very family oriented. There's a lot of hugs, kisses, you know, family's very tight. So yeah, I do think there's something about the U.S. is just so big and so... Um, not cold. It's not that necessarily it's cold, but it's just there's different rules and 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 culture about how you interact with people. And this is my safe space. I don't want anybody in my safe space. You go to other countries, everyone's pushing, everyone's touching you if you want to or not. Right? It's just different. And yeah, it's interesting that this is one of the causes to what we're talking about. Yeah, and I think you know it's very very interesting. And I think to me, as somebody who's a psychiatrist, one of the things that we focus on a lot is how do we take tools? And I'm also a translational neuroscientist, right? So it's like, how do you take tools that are in, that are researched when we understand something and research, how do we translate that to the community as something meaningful? How do we, how do we impact them as many people as possible with, in, with the public health revolutions that can actually change health at large for a giant group of people, not just one patient at a time. And of course, changing somebody's life one patient at a time or one person at a time is critically important. It's where everything starts. At the same time, there are certain solutions that are tools also that come to the forefront, like soothing touch, where you realize that this is something that everyone could access for free if we wanted to. And it's one of the most powerful therapies and powerful healing modalities that we have. Hippocrates called it the laying on of hands. 
right? This is not new. This is literally thousands of years old medicine. And now psychiatrists and many Western doctors in the US are taught to not touch their patients, mm-hmm. right? So this is where we are at right now. Yeah. And you don't want a lawsuit. It's yeah, but 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 that's that's part of the problem, right? It's not yeah. about we can't let the the lawyers determine how medicine is practiced. Medicine has to be practiced the way that medicine was intended to be practiced. People just need to do that properly and ethically and respectfully, right? We can't just say, oh, well, nobody's allowed to touch each other anymore because some people, there were a few bad apples who took advantage of other people. Let's take those people out of the equation. Let's send them to some rehabilitation and make sure that they get some health education, coaching, et cetera. Maybe they're not supposed, maybe they're not, you know, safe enough to see patients anymore solo, right? But the point is that that the there are that it doesn't take away from the fact that soothing touch is the cheapest healing modality method tool that we all have access to for free other than breathing itself yeah. right touch is it so you know this is one of the main things that i think we really need and and we're working hard at the board of medicine and many with many of my colleagues to usher this education and knowledge back into western medical practice it's just going to take some time and oh, apollo sure. is a big part of that i feel like there's the problem is there's always going to be people that are going to take if you give certain people certain power there's always going to be a handful of people. doesn't matter if it's half a percent, 2%, 5% of people that are always going to take advantage of it, whether it's religious leaders, doctors, healers, politicians, anybody, you know, actors, anybody with some power, there's always going to be, a, like you said, a few rotten apples and they're going to ruin it for the rest because that's the one that's going to go into the media. The media is going to blow it up. Then they're going to look into it. They're going to start all these regulations, which you know, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes they go overboard, but I want to get into a little bit more about, um, psychedelics because I think everyone knows what they know about psychedelics. They know LSD, MDMA. They know these are for the most part street drugs. They potentially kill people. People have bad effects. They, you know, back home, we say they flip out because they, you know, something happens to them and they're not the same person after using it. And all the bad stuff I'm sure people have heard of and they, and they know the stigma, but I'd love for you to maybe teach people or expand on the positive things and how this these psychedelic drugs can actually be used to assist people with trauma, anxiety, depression, et cetera. Happy to. Um, and if you don't mind, I'll just, I just correct one thing that you said earlier, which is that people know a lot about these drugs, LSD, MDMA, and you might or maybe yeah maybe not know a lot but maybe they, have heard well no and that they you said that they kill people and what i want to correct is that these medicines are unique and interesting in that they generally don't kill anyone and it's almost impossible to kill yourself by taking too much lsd or too much psilocybin mushrooms or too much of any of the classic psychedelics the drug is not what kills you it's, sure. that's what happens when you take too much opioid narcotic or when you take too much opioid narcotic with alcohol or benzodiazepines or things like that or barbiturates those drugs have a very very low toxicity threshold in that you take a little bit too much and it could stop you from breathing that is very very serious so when if i can ta- correct my if i can correct myself yeah 
I so people I pers- people can kill themselves sure. when taking psychedelic medicine if they're in the wrong environment. Yeah, because I personally know a few people that that have died. Now, no one has died. It's not like you know um, they took a heroin overdose and they directly died from that. But they, I know people that have done a lot of drugs and eventually because of that, right? Not directly that the drug killed them, but because of that usage, they eventually ended up dying either by suicide or by other means. That's what I meant. I didn't explain myself properly. Oh, no, that's okay. And this, I'm glad you said what you said, because this is a very common mistake. So um, it's important to clarify that. And, and I think it's an interesting point to, to start with, because again, we're talking about, you know, the dose makes the poison. One of the things that's really interesting about psychedelic medicines like LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin as three examples that are, you know, kind of on the forefront right now is that the, and ketamine being another one, is that it's very, these medicines have a much higher uh, threshold for toxicity, meaning you have to take much, much more to hurt yourself mm-hmm. with the medicine itself causing the toxicity than you do with even alcohol or with nicotine or with um, opiates or some of these other medicines, barbiturates. But the medicines are very powerful psychologically speaking. And so what happens is, Psychedelic medicines, going back to where this word comes from, are medicines, molecules that facilitate access to our subconscious. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we are having a conversation right now. We're both aware of our conversation. You as a listener are aware of my voice right now. You're hearing my voice. That awareness, if you can imagine, is the tip of an iceberg that's sticking up out of the water. That's the part of what's happening around you right now as you're listening to this show and listening to my voice that you are aware of in your conscious mind. You are you can pay attention to it and you're aware of it happening right now. Like the potentially the feeling of the chair that you're sitting on or the, or the bed or um, the car or the feeling of your clothes on your body or the heat or the cold and the music around you or things like that. Those are the things that you're aware of that you know you're aware of. Then there's the hundred times or thousand times bigger iceberg that lies beneath the surface of the water that is still your consciousness. It's still part of you. It's part of your world, but it's called subconscious because it's beneath awareness on a regular basis. Still following me? Yeah. So what that means is that we are only aware of the tip of the iceberg and not aware of the thousand times plus that exists of that iceberg that exists below the surface because if we were aware of everything that was beneath the surface all the time, it would be too distracting for us to be able to function in our day-to-day lives. So we train our brains over the course of our whole lives to be aware of only what is above the surface of the water. When you... Now, when we do a meditation state or, or we enter a med- deep meditative state or we do sometimes with yoga, this can happen or with exercise flows, people who run ultra marathons or do extreme sports and things like that, or with psychedelic medicines, these the we activate certain parts of our brain that allow us to see beneath the surface for a certain amount of time. And when you can see beneath the surface, we are giving ourselves the opportunity to look beneath our normal awareness, our normal waking awareness. The most common example of this is dreams. 
when we're asleep, our ego part of our brain is decreased in activity. The decision-making part is decreased in activity. And then all of a sudden we become aware of all of these things in our subconscious beneath the surface. And then we can decide with a, me with a medicine, especially when you take a psychedelic medicine, you're doing it with intention, hopefully, and with a guide. And so you can decide what of that subconscious material, what of that stuff that lies beneath the surface you actually want to take with you and what you can learn from it to bring into your day-to-day -day life. And so the this is also really important to understand is that the psychedelic medicines are not, they're not doing anything that we can't do ourselves in a dream or a meditation or a breath work. What they are doing is they are giving us the ability to access these deep states, the subconscious material with a molecule that is time limited. It activates you for a certain amount of time and helps you get access to this material. It helps you get access to that material, whether it's positive or negative or uncomfortable or comfortable or loving or filled with resentment and, and trauma. It gives you access to the material. It's not necessarily good or bad. And so what happens is what, we, what the medicines get referred to is nonspecific amplifiers, which is pretty phenomenally amazing in when you think about what they're doing for therapy because you're giving somebody an experience of therapy and then you're giving them a medicine that is augmenting what they're bringing into that therapy, which, which is safety and intention and thoughtfulness and these kinds of things, which allows them to go back into their subconscious and re-experience and reacquaint themselves with their subconscious, with that stuff that's beneath the surface from the perspective of feeling safe, right? And then all it's of a kind sudden, of a shortcut, right? Because like, not meditation doesn't necessarily work for everyone. Running, not everyone's a runner where they can get that runner's high. This is almost a surefire way to access those things. Again, maybe not a hundred percent, but definitely your chances are much higher than maybe some of the other potential things out there. So it's a shortcut to access, but it's not necessarily going to get you to healing. Sure. Unless you have the situation set up and you're properly and you're using the medicine properly and you're in a safe environment and you've taken care of that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. All the safety stuff, you've eliminated the risks to that as much as possible and you feel safe enough to let go and really experience what the medicine has to offer you, then the medicine can be a, a, you know, a therapy amplifier that's very, very significant that rapidly amplifies your, your therapy work that literally, you know, you can accomplish years of therapy in a single session. Wow. However, however, you can't get necessarily, you, you, you can do the opposite of that if you're using the medicines improperly or disrespectfully to escape from yourself, but alone or in a questionable environment, the medicines will amp can amplify distrust, they can amplify uh, fear, they can amplify feelings of threat, they are not universally positive, right? So this is going back to what you're saying earlier that people you've known, you know, have hurt themselves on these medicines and people have made mistakes with the medicines. It's absolutely true. What, everything that we're doing is to try to help teach people how to avoid that at all costs because the medicines when used properly have an extremely high success rate and they found to be extremely safe. So we're really working to help put together an opportunities and education so that people can have safer access to these tools. But they're not, I wouldn't call them a shortcut because frankly, I don't think there are shortcuts that don't have yeah. a drawback. So what they are 
it said, if you say shortcut, I think people will be like, oh, I'm just going to take this medicine by myself and not prepare or not do anything that I need, I'm need. i supposed to be doing and I'm going to get all this stuff out of it. And maybe you will, but you also put yourself at risk. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, really important to recognize that every shortcut has a drawback. And so no shortcuts are generally worth taking. What this really is a tool that when used properly can amplify the benefits of therapy. You said something which I thought was interesting that this could, you know, one session could equal, you know, years of therapy. And if I know anything about any, anything is that people like to make money. And if you tell, you know, therapists that, Hey, this thing, instead of you having a client come in, you know, twice a week for five years, they can come in four times and they're done. I don't think they're going to be really into it. No, that seems like uh, cutting into the bottom line. So uh, what I can tell you most therapists care about is healing their patients. Okay. Most therapists in the US, there's a huge shortage of therapists in the US and in many other first world countries and, and psychiatrists. There is not, there are way more patients that we can handle, which makes our jobs very overwhelming. So what we we don't have a shortage of filling up our schedules. What we do have is a shortage of tools that we that are we know how to use to actually make people better long term. So most therapists that know about these kinds of tools in the US are signing up for training because they are ready to go and they are ready to have anything that could help them see a patient actually get better for the long haul. Right now, most patients who wind up in psychotherapy or talk therapy or who wind up on psychiatric medication are on it for life. Yeah. And that is not anything that encourages the patients to participate in treatment and it makes our lives hard as clinicians and it makes it frankly it makes our jobs feel very um unrewarding because we can't actually make people better. Uh we just put people on drugs that, and talk to them for their whole lives and you know, is some people that's just what they need, but there are opportunities now that we are learning from the science where that are very exciting that therapists are very excited about as well, where we actually have the opportunity to start to think about using the word cure and talk about people actually healing and recovering from mental illness, which is something that we haven't had the opportunity to talk about before. So um, there is no pushback from the therapist. I think the biggest pushback that we see in the Western world is actually from the federal, from the big federal government yeah. and the governmental bodies that have created these regulations on these medicines that are not aligned with the way the medicines actually work and not aligned with their safety profile. And we see pushback to some extent from pharmaceutical, big pharmaceutical companies. But um, other than that, the therapists and the practitioners are all, are completely behind it. So what is the process right now of, of if you want to help treat patients with psychedelic? Because most of these things, um, um, if I'm not mistaken, are stub, um, what do they call it? Like uh, they're illegal. What's it called? Substance ones or forget exactly the terminology, but essentially schedule one. schedule one. Yeah, but they're all illegal. So what is, you know, what's the process of helping uh, patients? So they're not all legal. Ketamine is legal in the US. Ketamine's been legal since I think the 1970s or so. It's the only legal psychedelic in the US that's federally legal in every state. Um, It's also legal in almost every country worldwide um, as the only mass mass legal psychedelic. Um, Because it, well, interestingly, it was developed as an anesthetic tool because it has aesthetic properties. 
um, as for pain management and for um, knocking people out for surgery and in, when they've had accidents in wartime scenarios and that kind of thing okay. and injuries. And so it was studied very, very, very well um, for that purpose. And then people found out that it had psychedelic psychoactive properties later. And so it was already legal by the time people had found out that it had these powerful psychedelic um, properties. And then um, people found a number of folks who were studying it found that it had very potent antidepressant effects. And then that became a tool that was started to be used by psychiatrists for psychotherapy and improving outcomes in depression and PTSD, um, which it's now FDA approved for uh, PTSD treatment, or sorry, for depression treatment um, in the US. So ketamine is very accessible. Um, I think the challenge with ketamine is that there's not no very good guidelines around how to deliver it that are set up as sort of the standard of care. And so a lot of people will go to, to clinics that are just doing an injection of ketamine or, or putting ketamine in your arm and you might have a good experience, but you don't have the therapy before and after, you're not going to have as good an experience. And so we're trying to help help the community understand what best practices are around these medicines. Very big project with the Board of Medicine as a collaboration between the Board of Medicine and psychedelic.support, where we're putting out um, we're, we're putting out and supporting the lead uh, trainings. So if anybody wants to get involved in um, and learn about this stuff, you could actually get access to the what I know currently is the only APA American Psychological Association accredited trainings which will give you uh, CME and CE continuing education credits um, on the Board of Medicine website. And you can click psychedelic.support and you can get access to these trainings and get actual credit towards your license in any number of specialties in the US to learn the basics of ketamine, psilocybin, and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So this is the start of creating online tools for anybody to educate themselves in the clinical world about how to use these medicines safely. Um, ketamine being the only one that's currently legal. So, but ketamine is, can be accessed in every state, which is really great. And, um, you know, it's getting more accessible. So hopefully, um, people will, as guidelines come out, people will use it more safely. Um, and it will have more of a positive, uh, impact on society. Um, it seems to be going in that direction. Yeah, I actually, I had no idea. That's interesting. Um, but as you said, LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, there's so many different psychedelics um, that used in therapy. I'm interested, like, how do you tailor what psychedelic drug you give to what patient? Like, or just example, like this specific thing, this one's better for depression, this specific thing, this one's better for, uh, you know, PTSD, et cetera, or is, or again, like, how, how do you figure that out? So we figured out through cl clinical trials. Um, there are a number of trials that are ongoing that are, that are figuring that out currently in the US and around the world. There are study sites in Israel for MDMA um, and in Europe and in Canada and the US. Um, there's lots, lots of studies going on. So that's to answer your question, that's how we figure it out. At, at this time, ketamine, uh, ketamine is the only legal psychedelic. So it's the only medicine that the average person on the street can Google or Google their local provider and call up and say, hey, I want an appointment. Can I come in next week and they can get an appointment? Um, with MDMA, psilocybin, and LSD, those are all still in clinical trials, as is every other psychedelic medicine um, of the psychedelic medicines that we're talking about. And so you can only access those in the confines of a clinical trial. Okay. So yeah. there's no, we, we're not really able to make a choice right now 
effectively as to what's better. But when the studies start to come out, the studies will give us guidance to say, you know, this is better. MDMA is probably better for PTSD. Ketamine is probably the best for depression. There's probably a lot of crossover between them um, in terms of them both, because trauma is often at the core of all of most mental illness. So there are certain uh, psychedelic medicines that work better for people who have anxiety and others that work better for people who don't have anxiety um, coming in. So that can be really helpful um, as well as a guide. And so, you know, as more and more of those studies come out, we'll have more guidance as to what we can use. But right now there's only one choice. So we don't really have to make that decision. Yeah. No, I just figured there's probably programs. And like you said, there's doctors and, and places around the world that are doing this. And maybe they've had foundings where, oh, like MDMA specifically better for this thing, LSD specifically better to cure that thing. So that's why I wanted, but yeah, it's in, uh, I guess in the U S ketamine, really the only option right now. I mean, worldwide ketamine is the only legal psychedelic. There are all the other psychedelic medicines are basically illegal in every country worldwide because of the UN, uh, the, the U S, um, directed UN, um, signing of, I can't remember what it was called, but it was, this, um, sure. an arrangement in the, uh, after world war two or sorry, in the seventies and eighties. So ultimately, ketamine is the only legal psychedelic. So there is not enough data at this point from any compilation of studies that has been published to understand without a doubt what is best for whom in which situations. We know that certain medicines are more gentle than others. We know certain medicines like MDMA and ketamine have a lower risk of side effects um, than others. They have a lower risk of paranoia. There's a lower risk of um, negative experiences basically, or really challenging experiences. Um, so, you know, I think right now, a lot of the decision is made based on how gentle the medicine is, but when the medicine's used properly, you can, you can have very nice experiences with that are very therapeutic with any of these molecules. So it really just depends on, you know, what you know about the patient, the individual patient, how you match the medicine to that individual but at this point, we just don't have the data at large to be able to make those kinds of decisions the way we want to. But it's coming. Yeah. You know, when I was younger, probably pre-Army, so maybe like 17, I uh, I tried LSD a few times and uh, I did it in the, in the way that every teenager does it. I went to a party, you know, I drank, I mixed a lot of different things probably that I shouldn't have. But I remember there was one time I was at this party and these thoughts were running through my head like a million miles a minute. And I thought I was Einstein. I was like, I am the smartest man alive. Like there's no other human that have, that has thought these thoughts and come up with these ideas. And as soon as one was coming into my mind, it was gone. And the next one was coming in and the next one came and that was gone. And the next one, and just boom, 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 all these, but like things that like my brain never thought of before. Right. And then, you know, you go to sleep or whatever, you wake up the next day. And I was like, did I actually think all these genius thoughts or was I just delusional? And I like the things, you know, kind of like how when you're drunk, you think you're, you know, the best answer. And then your friends are looking at you from the side, laughing at you like, oh, look at this idiot. Look how he looks. But you think you're the man. And I wonder if that there's a parallel there where like, at the time, I may have thought that I was this super smart person, like having all these thoughts. And then 
if I were able to write, write them down, for example, and I would read them the next day, I'd be like, oh, this is a pile of shit. Like this has nothing. Or was it actually something that had some merit to it? Um, so it's probably a little bit of both. <laughs> I think that one thing that's really important to know about consciousness and thoughts, as an example, is that there are basically no original thoughts. Mm -hmm. There, basically, there are original thoughts, meaning they're new to us, and they're coming out through our filter, but they're not new, as in, I am never the only person who has had X thought. Because there are billions of people on the earth and there are billions of people on the earth and there are people who have lived here for much, much longer than we have. Sure. And so to think that we are the only person who has had these ingenious thoughts is really falling into the trap of hubris, mm -hmm. which is that we are special and so special that we were blessed with having all of this special knowledge that no one else is able to have or access, which creates a little bit of a problem for an individual because if you believe that is happening, then oftentimes, and you feel really good in the moment about it, then oftentimes what happens is you fall into this trap of hubris and pride, which makes you believe that you are so special and so different from other people that you can get what's called, uh, there's lots of names for it, but one of them is called like the Messiah complex, right? Where you believe that you are chosen yeah the chosen one. to receive this information and yes you were you were chosen to receive this information and much of it that's the complex right that's the hard part of it is is that you were chosen to receive this information all this information is coming to you you're perceiving it you're taking it in and so is everyone else <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just that you are receiving it in a way that allows you with your with your subconscious conscious filter just altered by the molecules that you're took or the meditation state that you're in that you are able to receive it in a way that allows you to do something different with it mm -hmm. and then what really makes us different if we really want to talk about what ultimately distinguishes us as human beings is who actually does something with it and who just sits with the ideas and lets the ideas just kind of fizzle out or writes them down but doesn't actually do anything about it, right? So what I like, to, I like to think about it as there's three stages of ideation, which are not, and creativity, which are not necessarily related to psychedelics, but psychedelics can facilitate them. So, and psychedelic states like meditation states, drug-induced or not, can facilitate the, the, these creative, pro, this creative process. So the creative process is the initial ideation, right? Coming up with an idea, you have an idea that comes to your head. You're like, this is so brilliant. This is so amazing. I've never thought about things this way before. Wow, I am so blessed to be able to have, have this idea and to feel this experience and, and think about things in this new way. Okay, great. That's step one. Good for you. Lots of other people have had that idea. Yeah. Guaranteed. Step two, which starts to separate you from everyone else who's also had that idea, is how do you translate that idea into something that exists long after you had that idea in your head, right? 
So it could be writing it down, it could be recording it, it could be painting it, it could be singing it, it could be making it music out of a guitar, it could be any number of things, but it's something that gets it out of your consciousness and into something that other people can experience. So that's step two. Once you've done that successfully, you are in the top 5% probably of ideators worldwide. So you're starting to get a little more special, right? Then there's step three, which is actually executing on the idea. So that means taking what you created from the idea, iterating on it, sharing it with other people, getting their feedback, then sharing it, then modifying it, iterating again, sharing with other people, getting their feedback, then taking that feedback, going back, iterating it, modifying again, then doing it again and again and again until you have something that you and hopefully other people are excited about that you can turn into something, which is the manifesting part. That's the actual, what, what psychedelic means. Psyche means mind, delos means to show, but often people think of psychedelics as mind manifesting. So it's really taking what's beneath the subconscious, accessing these incredible ideas, making something out of them, and then making something out of that that can impact many, many, many people's lives, if not just your own, in an extremely meaningful way. Yeah, unfortunately for me, this was 20 years ago, and I did it as a way to to be cool, right? Like, oh, this is uh, something that's illegal, blah, blah, blah. And like the cool kids are doing it. Let me do it as well. And then I did find a community. I did find happiness. I did find, I did find things, but like, I never thought of it as something that's a mind expanding tool, something that I could write down or, you know, I don't know, think of later or try to manifest some inner thing that's happening it just it was just like a way i was probably the the person that we earlier talked about that shouldn't be using it you know and that's why i think it's so important like i would love for them to to find a way to have this accessible to people that actually need it and actually need it and not some 18 year old that wants to go get fucked up at a party right because a lot of times those kids and not you know not the majority but a percentage of them will end up in a bad place, right? And that's the unfortunate part. And then that's why it's, I think it's so hard to, to make that distinction. Like how can we make this accessible to people who need it with, with you know, uh, with a doctor, with the safe place and not accessible for everyone on the street to, to go get it and use it and potentially have really bad uh, effects afterwards. Yeah, it's a, and it's a very complex situation, right? There's yeah. lots of, there's lots of challenges here that we're trying to overcome as a community, but um, ultimately people will use drugs, right? People will just like sex, people will have sex. All we can do as thoughtful, responsible stewards of knowledge and wisdom is to pass on that knowledge and pass on that wisdom to educate the community so that if we know people are gonna do these things, that the very least, they have the tools and the know-how to do them safely. We can't do anything more than that. So that's really what the entire focus of everything we do on is. The Board of Medicine um, that we were talking about earlier is a medical board where we that actually you know is a 501c3 nonprofit in the US that we really focus on passing on the knowledge, top, what we call top-down learning. So you, you take all a bunch of evidence, you write it up, 
And then you teach it to people by telling them about it or you give them reading material and they read about it, right? And that's called top-down learning. I'm giving you information, you take it in, and then you have to act on it and make it something. Mm -hmm. So the other way of learning that's really important that we often are not taught about is called bottom-up learning. This is the way Apollo works. So Apollo is sending these signals to to the body that the body feels as safe and reminds us that we're in control of our experience. We're in control of how we feel, right? By feeling in control. If you feel in control and you feel safe, you can remember that you are in control and that you can feel safe and that you're in control to a large extent of how safe you feel. And that tech, the technology works in that way through your, through the body first, bottom up, you make the body feel safe and then the mind follows, right? And so while we can't make psychedelics safe for everyone and they shouldn't be used by everyone, and there are lots of people like people who have psychotic disorder and probably and bipolar disorder and a number of other disorders that are probably not good candidates for psychedelic medicine, um, we have the opportunity now to provide tools that start to make the experience more accessible to people who will do it by, by teaching them from the top down and from the bottom up, that they can be in control of how they feel and that they can be in control of their bodies and that they can understand and use these tools as learning tools by doing the right preparation and doing the right integration and setting themselves up for the right experience, we can prepare people to have the best possible experience that they will that they could have. And so these are the two angles and there will be lots more stuff coming out about this, but um, Apollo, I should mention, received a very exciting um, uh, patent issuance recently that is, from what we know, the first technology in the US to be receive a patent to mitigate unwanted or unpleasant experiences associated with medicine-assisted therapy. So this includes wow. psychedelic-assisted therapy. And we've seen now in many uh, clinics, ketamine clinics using Apollo, that um, we actually, that, that using Apollo actually re- helps reduce people's stress and apprehensive apprehension and anxious feelings before they go into their ketamine experiences and they have way better experiences, like much, much better. Wow. And it reduces the amount of side effects that they have from the ketamine experiences because they feel calmer going into the experience. And so this is in large part what's, what spurred the development of this IP, um, which is very exciting because now we're starting to have tools that anybody can access that can start to improve the quality of these experiences that people are having, whether they're in clinic or not. Yeah. I'll be sure to, that sounds fascinating. I'll be sure to link it in the, in the show notes so people can easily go and and find it if they're interested. Um, before we wrap up, actually, I wanted to, to get your opinion on something. I read the other day that uh, Congress recently introduced um, bill, the right to try clarification act. And essentially, it's granting terminally ill patients the ability to try investigational drugs as part of their treatment, specifically seeking access to psilocybin-assisted therapy. Uh, I don't think they got very far with it, but I think they're trying to push it. And uh, yeah, I'd just love to get your opinion on it. I mean, it's a great thing that that moved forward. You know, I think at, you know there were some major studies that came out of Johns Hopkins by Roland Griffiths and uh, doc, and Dr. Gabby Egan Leaves and a number of other uh, others at their wonderful team that published some groundbreaking work showing that um, giving relatively small doses of psilocybin that induced a peak uh, experience mm-hmm. in 
a two p- folks who were terminally ill um, had dramatic impact on their quality of life at the end of the life their lives, and I think in some cases actually extended their lives beyond their prognosis. Um, and you know what what could be what could be a greater gift than we could offer to people who are strung out and anxious about what's coming next on their deathbed or yeah. when they're when they have a terminal diagnosis then something that helps them feel more at ease to us it's you know as to, as physicians as psychiatrists we've been looking for something like this for hundreds of years there has just never been anything that we knew of other than opioid narcotics which just numb you and prevent you from being able to function and communicate which don't actually solve the problem they prevent you from even communicating or having your brain work to talk to your family members we can now have one session with people with psilocybin as demonstrated in the johns hopkins study that dramatically in one session changes somebody's entire outlook on life and death and makes them at peace helps them be at peace with what's coming next. And again, I just reiterate, I don't I don't think there's anything more valuable to be offering for these people and I think frankly it's our responsibility as a medical community to make these tools available. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I love the extending part because there's nothing inherent about this drug that would extend someone's life, but it would be, you know, it's kind of like I, I I read this thing once about Warren Buffett where, you know, he's like 400 years old. And uh, the guy just essentially just drinks Coke all day and eats McDonald's like he eats like crap and drinks like crap. But he's you know, he's up there. He's what, 90, I think. And he just doesn't worry about food. And I think a lot of time we worry so much like we get anxious and about, oh, we should. Oh, I ate one too many cupcakes. I did this. I did that. And that worry goes into our system and then we get anxious and it almost defeats the purpose of the healthy food. Where if you're just relaxed, you're like, yeah, I'm going to eat what I want. And somehow that is just soothing to the system and allows you to go on. So, yeah, interesting. Anyway, David, this was awesome. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, I really appreciate My pleasure. it. Where can people find you? What are the best places? And find Apollo as well. So you can find, the easiest place to find Apollo is at apolloneuro.com or wearablehugs.com. That's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com or wearablehugs.com. And you could find me uh, at drdave.io or my clinic, apollo.clinic. And you can also find me on socials. I'd love to hear from you. Um, and so please reach out on Instagram at Dr. David Rabin and on Twitter at Dr. David Rabin. And come join me on Clubhouse sometime and let's chat. Uh, when we do our live interviews and events, uh, love to hear from you. Um, and if you want to hear about the events that are coming up with the podcast, um, as well uh, as and all the exciting media and or and releases and new stuff that's coming out on the um, everything, the best place is to join the Apollo email list at uh, wearablehugs.com or apolloneuro.com, and we'll keep you in the loop. Yeah, I can't wait to to hear that podcast. That sounds awesome. Uh, David, this was awesome, and thank you. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.